Welcome to the Journal of Animal Ecology podcast. At Intercol in August 2013, the Journal of Animal Ecology sponsored a symposium entitled Multi-Level Transmission Processes in Disease Transmission, Blending Models and Data. The keynote talk was given by Professor Peter Hudson from the Pennsylvania State University, USA. And the title of his presentation was Patterns of Disease Invasion in Reintroduced Species, Impact on the Hosts and Population Consequences. Spillover, transmission, invasion, the very processes determine emergence of new infectious diseases. And yet, we know very, very little about this. On the one hand, we know almost nothing about these processes, and yet they're so important to the emergence of these diseases. On the other hand, many of you will have experienced these. Just imagine the scenario. Scenario where you're walking down the road, somebody comes up behind you, and they sneeze all over you. Within a period of something like 24 hours, you're starting to feel rather sick. Your joints start to ache, you're sitting in bed, you are miserable as hell, and in that misery, you turn around and say, where the hell did this disease come from? I've had 1,001 infections in my life. Isn't my adaptive immune system such that I should be resistant against anything? Why am I getting infected again? And what happened to that infection I had last year? Is that still circulating around? So, and I have to get this one? This is really unfair. Somebody's got to take the blame for this. Well, the simple answer where it came from is it came from, uh, it came from uh, wildlife. Most zoonotic diseases, more than 60% of human infections, were derived from wildlife. And indeed, all the significant infections we've had through history, such as measles. Where did measles come from? It evolved from rinderpest, and rinderpest was an infection of cattle, and probably with the development of uh, using livestock and things, humans got infected with that. Plague. Plague, where did that come from? It came from rats brought down in the 1300s, and had a devastating effect on the European population. And, of course, HIV itself came from SIV in chimpanzees. It came across to us, and it's probably here. It's going to stay with us for a period of time. So the process is basically one where we have infections circulating in wildlife, and then they, trans then they spill over into human populations, we just get this rain of infection that comes down on us. We have plant pathogens and everything all the time. But the general belief is very rarely do one of those infections actually get through. Sometimes you become infected and you don't pass it on. Other times you get it. And we might see, we might see a stuttering chain of transmission. And very rarely, such as in the case of HIV or in dengue virus, does it actually become uh, embodied in the population? It transmits across the population. So we ask this question, what insights can we obtain by reviewing the dynamical models of zoonotic infections? We wanted to use models to sort of uh, investigate and see if we could do a very detailed study of our understanding of zoonotic infections. So a group of us, which was led by Jamie Lloyd-Smith, but also included people like Dylan George, Kim Pepp, and Juliet Pulliam and Ginny Feitzer did, uh, they did all the work, and then Andy Dobson, myself, and Brian Grenfell spent most of the time sitting in the pub talking about it. 
And what they went and did while we were in the pub was they reviewed all 442 modelling papers that have been done on 85 zoonotic infections. And what they found was this. <laughs> this shows very, very clearly that there's been a lot of work done on influenza and a lot of work done on SARS in the modelling field. Um, but there's a whole series of areas where there have been totally and utterly underserved. The underserved ones are the chronic vector and asymptomatic. But the point that, um, you can forget all that, but the important point is in the bottom of this slide. So most people study zoonotic diseases either in the reservoir host, and you do this if you study rabies, and, or, they just study it, or they just study what happens in the target host. They study what happens when you get a human epidemic, which is the case with SARS. Very few people study what happens at spillover. We really need to know much more about what takes place at spillover. So the basic process is one of spillover. And one of the questions that I think is a pressing question is to ask how strong is the force of infection in these spillovers. And that's going to be the first question I talk about. The second question I'm going to ask is what happens after invasion? and how the infection actually persists. But let's start with this first one about how strong is this force of uh, spillover. Well, there are two approaches that people are taking at the moment. And the first approach is that of PREDICT. And what PREDICT is, is a program sponsored by USDA, where basically they're going out and trying to predict where the next spillover event, the next emerging disease is coming from. Well, I don't understand that, really, because... They're using maps and correlations to say we expect it to be coming from these animals in this location, but you find the coronavirus in a mouse or a rat. Does that mean it's going to spill over? I don't really understand that. The other approach to take is the random approach, which is the stochastic hierarchical infection transmission, which happens to drive spillover. Now, this was an event, this was something that was uh, developed by a good colleague of mine, and basically it is saying. Random events take place, and there's nothing you can do about it. The other approach is, can we make some sort of experimental approach? Well, if we were to do an experimental approach, the best thing would be simply to go out there and introduce an infection into the human population. Now, my ethics committee won't let me do this. I know Jenna did this when he infected the, you know, the little boy when he was doing the vaccination program, but ethics committees won't allow you to do this. So... One, thing, one approach that I've thought of, an approach that might be useful, is to see what happens when we reintroduce naive hosts back into, the ho back into areas where they've been extirpated from. So there are a number of occasions we go and take animals, such as this rhino, we take them into habitat where they've been absent for a long period of time. When we do this, we make sure the animals are clean. We've vaccinated the animals... We make sure that they've, uh, they've all been treated with antelmintic before we release these animals. So they have no disease and they're not going to get an infection as soon as that happens. But these babies have ba these babies. These animals then have babies and those animals are naive. So what happens with the invasion, the spillover that takes place? Now, the only reason I'm talking is because I work with the chair chairman now, Tim Corson. And Tim and I are working on a number of problems to do with the wolves in Yellowstone National Park. 
Now, back in 1995, our colleague Doug Smith uh, released 14 wolves in 1995, and they'd all been treated, they'd all been vaccinated, um, they were released as nice, clean animals. There were no wolves anywhere else around them. Then in 96, he released another 17, and basically this graph shows you the changes in abundance that have taken place. Tim and I are interested in these dynamics. The one thing that I'm particularly interested in is the role of the infections. So what happened when we introduced these wolves? Well, first of all, there was immediate invasion. Invasion in the first year into the pups that came from those wolves that were released. Canine parvovirus, adenovirus, moved in almost immediately. Seroprevalence levels were very high, and both of these are transmitted by oronasal um, oral fecal transmission. And they probably came from one of these animals. Sorry, the pointer doesn't work. Came from the coyote or from the red fox that actually also inhabit the area. Soon after that, uh, we, saw we saw a canine distemper virus invade the population. And what we've only seen is occasional events take place. So the first invasion, as far as the wolves were concerned, wasn't until 1999. And when that came in, it hits the pup survival. The pups, another one in 2005, another one in 2007, pup survival falls almost to zero. It comes in and it basically wipes it all out. Where does it come from? Well, we don't really know, but we know that canine distemper was actually in the coyotes before we released the wolves. And the red bars are the bars showing the prevalence in the coyotes. And we think there was an, and it was clearly an outbreak in 1989 that affected the coyote population. The wolves released in 95, and then both the wolves and the coyotes had it again in 99. We suspect it actually came from the coyotes and spilt over. Where does it actually, how does this transmission take place? Well, coyotes go to many of the wolf kills. They'll go to the wolf kills, they'll try and steal some of the food from it, and it's clearly a place. When you see blood and guts and gore and warm dead animals, you think this is a real opportunity for transmission to take place. But there's also a huge amount of intragill predation. It really is quite phenomenal. Uh, the biggest impact that wolves have had in the whole of the Yellowstone ecosystem is they've devastated the coyote population because they basically just run them down and kill them. And as you're walking around doing fieldwork, you'll often come across the body of a dead coyote and nearly every time it's been killed by wolves. And it'll, you'll see the wolf bites in it. It's a lovely case where we found one with beautiful wolf bites in the skull of the coyote. Wolf-wolf killing is also very common. And it's really fascinating as the number of elk have gone down. So the wolf-wolf killing is the major cause of mortality, is that fair to say, Tim, at the current moment in the Yellowstone Park. So there's clearly going to be transmission events taking place there. Now, some infections have taken longer to come in. Sarcoptic mange being a classic example. That didn't come in until 2007. And basically, this is a map of the Yellowstone National Park and the pack that's designated A is Molly's pack. And that was the first pack that got invaded by the psychoptic mange. And as, if you follow the colours on the right-hand side, that came in in 2007. 
It quite quickly got up into the northern range, where the density of the wolves is much higher, and then the different colours illustrate how it moved in a wave backwards and forwards down Lamar Valley. Notice that there's a number of other packs in the southern part of the park which never even got infected. So we've been able to follow this invasion, we've been able to look at the selection, we've been able to look at the mortality that is actually taking place. But it's clear, it's a really nice illustration of how the disease has moved through this naive population. Finally, there have been a number of pathogens that I expected to see. I expected to see paroinfluenza virus, and we haven't seen signs of that, and I wanted to see Bordetella, and we haven't seen signs of that. Other things, and that could be because we're not looking for it correctly. It might be there, and we're missing it. So I think there are some things that haven't really invaded this population. So going back to my first question, if you remember on the slides you never saw, how frequent are spillover events? Well, with this reintroduction, we've been able to follow that. And I think we've shown that they're remarkably rapid. They've come in really, really fast, and they spread through the population. Now, how important that is to regulate in the wolf population, I would say we can't really say at the moment. Both Tim and I believe that disease has an important part to play, but we're trying to understand the interactions between that and the food supply and some of the, and some of the other processes, the wolf-wolf killing. But I want to now move on and talk about the second question, which is what happens after invasion has taken place? What happens and how do some pathogens actually persist? And I'm going to take you from Montana and I'm going to move slightly north into Idaho and Oregon and tell you about a population study, 16 different populations that we've been studying there. Just like the wolves, the bighorn sheep were effectively wiped out at the turn of the century. Not this century, but back in the 1900s. People come along, they just basically shot them. Cowboys obviously shot them to eat them. At the same time, they were killing off all the wolves. Indeed, the population was down to probably less than 1,000 in the northern Rockies by the uh, early 1900s. And so since then, they've been doing some reintroductions. They've been bringing sheep from Alberta down and releasing those. They've been breeding, breeding studies and releasing bighorn sheep back into the population. They're not recovering as well as they should do, and there's been a huge amount of study looking at this. And I'm going to avoid all of that detailed load of rubbish that they've done and really tell you that the answer is very simply because of mycoplasma over pneumonia. And I'm going to call that MOV because it's much easier to pronounce. And basically what MOV does is it gets into the lungs, it knocks out the ciliary escalator, and it opens up the lungs for secondary and tertiary infections. All the data and analysis we've done shows that MOV must be present first before this takes place, but then the secondary infections might be what actually kills the animal. But that's by the by. What's been happening with these populations is, where's this disease come from? This disease has effectively come from domestic sheep. It's a spillover from domestic sheep into the bighorn sheep, and it causes massive mortality. The mortality it causes is um, in the lambs is illustrated in this bottom figure where the red shows you the daily mortality hazard of the lambs. And most lambs are dead by 90, 98 days of age. The, the, uh, the line in black are control sites where disease was not present. And it's the same in domestic sheep. 
They just don't die of it. In fact, the domestic sheep appear to be very, very tolerant of these infections. They have low antibody levels. They, um, they have a high nasal carriage, but they have no immunopathology. On the other hand, the bighorn sheep show the characteristics of a resistant host. They show a very strong immune response, high antibody levels. They don't have a very strong nasal carriage uh, of, the, of the pathogen, and they have high immunopathology. And I think this is a general characteristic, and it's a general characteristic we should come back to. There was some work done about 10, 15 years ago to say resistance and tolerance isn't important in the process. But I still think there is evidence uh, that um, tolerant hosts are often the reservoir host, and the resistant hosts, the ones with a strong immunopathology, are often the target hosts. And I've listed a few of these examples, such as hanter in mice, SIV in chimps, Lyme disease, and a whole series of emerging diseases that come about, perhaps because of this process. In just the same way as we saw in the wolves, it would seem that spillover is also very frequent in this system. So this tree shows you um, different strains that we've taken from domestic sheep in red and the bighorn sheep in yellow. And you can see throughout this tree there are commonalities. My interpretation of this tree, and I say my interpretation because my collaborator who did this bit of work, Tom Besser, is a very tough pathologist, so he does, never agrees with any conclusion I get to. But he, he would say that a lot of... The, uh, I would say that there's been a lot of spillover events coming from the sheep into the bighorn sheep, occasionally into the mountain goats, and occasionally in domestic goats. But there's a lot of strains circulating. When we look at the dynamics of the populations we're studying, and these are 16 populations that we're studying in the Idaho, Oregon, Washington State area... The important thing, and these are time series. I've tried to simplify the time series by telling you that those areas in red, the red blobs, are the periods when there is no disease present. Those blobs that are the small grey blobs are the ones where there are, as an infection in the lambs. I'm going to try and see if this pointer works. Oh, there's another. Oh, yes, look at that. Gosh, you see, in America, we have everything on our phones. So, thanks, Tim. So, these are, this is a population where it hasn't actually invaded. In fact, we have evidence of it invading last, last year. We had a bit of an infection, and I've had my graduate student out on the hill from whence snowmelt right the way through till now, following every sheep, and there hasn't been another infection take place, and she's absolutely exhausted. In this population... Here's an invasion pro event that's taken place, and this has been an all-population killing with both lambs and adults. Then it's only seen in the lambs. The black one shows it's only seen in the adults, in the lambs, and then we see fade-out take place. The process is summarised here. Basically, you have a healthy population. Occasionally, it spills over. Occasionally, when you get infection take place, you see all-age uh, all mortality, and then it goes into these lambs. Uh, mortalities, and invariably it goes round and round in circles. Occasionally, it goes back to the all adults, and when we have an, uh, an all-adult mortality, then it might go back to being healthy. So we're able to record when fade-outs occur and when they don't occur. And this is the probability of what's actually taken place. This is the probability of fade-out since the years since invasion took place. And basically, 
it's been falling. It's basically the probability of a fade-out is becoming more and more persistent during this time period. When we look at what's happening with the individual U's, when we look at what's happening with the individual U's, then the U relative risk of dying is falling during this period of time, and the lambs relative risk of dying is increasing. And our models tell us that this must be because there's been an increase in the infectious period that is taking place. It's the only way we can, ex- only way we can explain this. So we're postulating that there are, that there are super spreaders out there, individuals who are asymptomatic and still infecting, and they must be the use for them to be able to infect the lambs so quickly. So our study at the moment is concentrating on that. But I think these data show something very interesting, and that is that the weaker hosts are selectively removed early on in the, uh, in the process. So what we actually see in summary is we see massive mortality events occurring soon after invasion. The mortality risk falls with sequential exposure, and now we're starting to see persistence. In most of our populations, we think this disease is there to stay. It's, it's present in the population, but it's killing off the lambs, so ultimately they're all going to go extinct. Our models, which I haven't shown you here, but the first models we've been doing, have been saying this must come about because of an increase in the infectious period. I don't think we're seeing any change in the pathogen taking place. But we are seeing replacement after fade-out. So we are seeing other infections. As soon as one fades out and we get another, di- another infection comes in, it's a different type. It's a different serotype. So the hypothesis that I think is taking place is that weaker individuals are being selected against. And these are the individuals that have the shorter infectious period, leaving the ones with the higher infectious period present. And those are the ones that are keeping this disease going on. The alternative is there's been some sort of pathogen selection. We don't have any evidence for it, but we can't refute it at the moment. So the the general conclusion is we're seeing weaker individuals being removed from the population. The ones with the longer infectious period are keeping it going. And I think this process is being seen in a number of other infections. Rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus is one of those. Uh, it, perhaps we saw it in the focine distemper virus outbreak as well, that it's the host selection rather than the uh, pathogen selection. So in summary, I ask two questions. How strong is spillover, rapid and often? And what happens after invasion? And I think persistence is coming about through host selection, or that's what the first data are starting to show us on this.